what Pastor Brown's going to speak on just real briefly. I don't want to take away from my sermon times, but uh, there's a few announcements that I want to put on the screen there. Let's go back onto those if we can. Like the, starting on the 2nd of January, it's going to be water baptism. Water ba- if, you are, if you've made a profession of faith in the Lord and you've said, I'd like to be water baptized, we're going to do that on Sunday morning of January the 2nd. We're going to start, how many know that's a great way to start the new year off right there? And then the following week is going to be Membership Sunday. And I've had about 10 people turn in a membership application through saying, Pastor Brown, um, I'm interested in membership. And once you see myself or JoJo or Jace after service, and we'll make sure we get you that and get it filled out. There's still time for you to be a part of the membership. It means something to, uh, to us. It means something to you. Even though y'all don't say amen very good, I still love you. Thank you. Thank you. There's one. Thank you. And uh, then the other, though, is uh, in the, probably the first or the second week of February, we'll be having our annual uh, business meeting, which we did not have last year because of uh, COVID and things of that nature. So we uh, pushed it off. And so there are, there are at least two of our board members that have completed their second three-year term. So there's going to be at least two spots that are coming open. And if you are a member of the church and you would like to nominate someone for deacon, then see me, and I'll tell you how to do it, because there is a little specific way that you have to do that. But the uh, nominations come from the membership, so you have about three weeks or so, three weeks to get these into me. So if you start thinking and praying, the Lord lay somebody that you have respect for within our fellowship. Um, I tell you what, I really enjoy the men that, that you and God has sent to me. They have just been friends, and they're advisors, and they're just so easy to work with, and they have a heart for our church family. And I'm going to really miss... You know, I was in the meeting the other night, and uh, some, you know, sometimes I occasionally get my wording wrong. Have y'all noticed that? And I told Larry Smith, Brother Larry, I said, Brother Larry, you, you're going to expire this year. <laughs> I mean, your position, your time, your tenure is expiring. So uh, <laughs> those are great guys. And then people are like, I don't know if I want to work with you, Pastor Brown, so I'm sorry. From there, so that's that, and those are the announcements. I appreciate each and every one of you coming out again. Joe says if you've got visitors, you know this this Wednesday night. I did forget a couple of things. They've already made these announcements, but I'm kind of putting some nuances on this a little bit. The the candlelight service that's new to us. It's not new to this community. There's several churches that's done this. It's going to be new to me. I've never participated in one. I've studied up on it a little bit. Uh, the children will be in service with us, and so we won't. That won't be a night of childcare. That's because it was, it's done intentionally, and not everybody's in agreement with it, but um, it's done intentionally to let the kids be in service with us. And so we'll um, be lighting the candle, and uh, then we're going to be dismissed. But it should be a great night, and so I do want to encourage you to come out and invite someone. But the following Sunday, December 26th, many of you will probably still be in Christmas celebration, but at the end of next Sunday service, we're going to have communion. So it's going to be a, a Christmas, if you will, in that sense. So for us on that December 26th, so it should be a great day. I've already got direction for the, both of those services, so I'm excited to be able to share the word with you. I want to ask you, if you would, to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 2, to one of the familiar stories of Scripture related to the nativity of Jesus. And I have had the most wonderful time. If the old song said it's a wonderful time of the year, it's a wonderful time particularly this year, because I have greatly enjoyed my preparation to stand in front of you today. Now, 
A lot of you don't understand the preparation that pastors go through to be able to bring a word to you. And some of it is not tied to 12 or 15 hours of study. Sometimes it's just a couple or three hours of study. But it's heart preparation. It's the meditation. It's, it's, it's pondering and kind of getting it down in your spirit. And so this particular uh, this year, the Lord just says, I'm just so grateful. I feel so privileged to share with you. I get a spiritual euphoria uh, to share with you something that the Lord's given me. And uh, now sometimes, obviously, I have a greater sense of expectation than at others. And this morning is one of those that I have great sense of expectation. I believe that what I'm going to share with you is going to burn in you the way it's burned in me. So we're going to read 12 verses of Scripture, and I'm going to ask if you would stand and honor the reading of Scripture. It's going to be in the screen in front of you, but if you've got a Bible with pages that turn, I'll encourage you to hold that in your hand. And uh, let's read this together here. And it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Obviously, we should note that Herod is troubled because he sees the potential of this the birth of this king as a rival to his throne. And so that's caused the trouble that's in his heart. He said unto him, in verse 5, and they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, in essence, that question that was posed, demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. When Herod, then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he said to them, or excuse me, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Now I think Bethlehem is about four or five miles south of Jerusalem. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Those are two powerful verses. We'll be talking about those in a minute. And it says, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod they departed into their own country another way now when the pastor comes on what we call holy days or holidays especially the most famous of all the narrative related to the birth of Jesus you know what do you do that you tell the same story to a familiar a familiar story to people that are extremely familiar with it and and you, you arrive at the place where you say, God, I just need something, something that just makes this broader, makes it deeper, makes it wider, makes it something where when I read it, I'll look at it perhaps a little bit differently than I did previously. And I think you will today after the end of this message. I think the next time you read Matthew chapter number 2, you're going verses 1 through 12, you'll recall 
what we're going to talk about today. And here's the title of my message. I told you on the phone tree yesterday. It is a star and a scepter. Now, before those of you that are English majors among us, and you see the word scepter, you're saying, once again, our pastor not only get, uh, can't speak correctly at times, he cannot spell. But when you use the King James Version of the Bible, this is biblically accurate, scepter, S-E-P-T-R-E. So you got to watch that, that autocorrect. It'll take out the way it used to be written and put it into the ways that it is now written. So it's a star and a scepter. So let's pray about that. How many of you will do that with me right now? Father, would you let preaching come easy in this house today? Come on, somebody. Man, I feel that in my spirit. Let it come easy in this house. And the way it'll come easy is if it's easily received. Father, it's going to be easily given and readily given. It's will it be easily received. That's yet to be determined. So I pray the people for a few short minutes, God, can move away from the hasty busyness of the schedule. And they can pause and they can look deep into the word. And we can gain something. Father, revelation related to a star and a scepter, God. In Jesus' name and all of God's children said... Amen and amen. We thank you so much for honoring the word of the Lord, following our tradition here at First Assembly of God. So I'd like to take a moment and just kind of broaden the background of the text and also occasionally reach into the text and kind of dialogue with it as we hasten towards a particular direction that the Lord has laid on my heart. But in doing so, I want to just gather some of the historical information. I don't want the historical information to seem kind of boring to you. Actually, it's very, very important that you look at the lens of history. You look through the lens of history and the geography and in order to gain the, the, the clear revelation that God wants for us to understand from this context. So this is one of the more familiar passages of Scripture related to the nativity of Jesus. Obviously, Luke uh, tells us a little bit of a different story as he talks more about the census and the journey to Bethlehem for the young couple. And this passage here is speaking of, again, the mag what we call the Magi. So let's see if we can dialogue this. It, it says that these men are known in the King James as wise men. It's magi, it's magos, I think, in the original language of Greek. It simply means that they were oriental scientists uh, or magicians. Or Really, it's kind of a broad sense. You really can't narrow it down exactly, explicitly, of, of what they were. So we've got to kind of broaden it, that they could have been magicians. They were teachers, possibly priests, uh, physicians, soothsayers, seers. For sure, astrologers, uh, some say interpreters of dreams, and even the term is translated sorcerer. So that kind of gives you the context that these men were, they were devoutly spiritual, but perhaps not fully, completely sold into Judaism, but they were acutely aware of Judaism for that directed their steps towards Jerusalem. So now the one thing that I wanted to first note of is it says that they came from the east, wise men from the east. But to help you understand a little bit of their journey, we don't really know. There's not a lot about history. You can, you can go and read as much, and search as much as you can, and you're just not going to find a lot of information because the Bible, they're very it's very obscure related to. It doesn't even give the town or the city that they came from just that they came from the east. But when you think of the east, you immediately think of immediately east of Jerusalem because that's where their first arrival is at Jerusalem. But if you go east of Jerusalem very far, you're going to go beyond the Judean wilderness. You're going to hit the Arabian desert. And so to go east, we're going to put this here. It's a picture on the screen. It's just a little bit of a map, and it's showing what we call as the Fertile Crescent. And so most of the time that anybody traveled 
from the east to Jerusalem. They can't take that direct route of the Arabian Desert. So you can look there somewhere kind of slightly northeast of Jerusalem is Babylon. But some believe that it's even possible that they were ever, they're actually further southeast from there along either the Tigris or the Euphrates River. But you can kind of see that here. And so that Fertile Crescent, we've talked about it before, how that there's two highways, major highways, that traveled the International Highway and the King's Highway. And it's most likely that these men were on the International Highway and made their way to Jerusalem. Well, that journey was over 1,000 miles. And that journey would have taken them most likely about four months. So you have to kind of understand that when you see this, that they always see as their arrival. But when they, that star appeared to them and they collected information and made, you know, uh, plans to make this journey, they were making an at least a year-long journey in their minds that when they left out and said goodbye to their family and friends. And so... Uh, again, their journey would have been west first, then northwest, then south via the, the International Highway, and then arriving at Jerusalem, and then subsequently at Bethlehem. Second, let's go if we can pick this up. With the appearance of the star, it, re- it does tell us that they must be associated with at least astronomy, but most likely astrology. Because what that means for us is these wise men very possibly looked to the stars for divine revelation. They weren't just studying the constellations for movement from a scientific perspective, it's very possible that they were looking into the stars for some type of divine inspiration, revelation. As we have noted throughout history, men have done so. And so we, again, you can almost connect them to the magicians or the soothsayers or the astrologers that were mentioned in the book of Daniel when Daniel was at Babylon. And that's why we can kind of a little bit make an association with the Magi that appeared here in Jerusalem and that which we record, see recorded in the book of Daniel. Noted again also is that they are concerned about something. They're there on this journey, and it's to see the king of the Jews. They want to physically lay eyes and present gift to this babe that they believe has been born because a star, a supernatural constellation has appeared in the, in the heavens, and they have chosen to follow it with a revelation that this is the birth of the king of the Jews. But when you read the king of the Jews, you have to do it more so than just in monarchy, more than just in governmental sense. Because again, Herod is the Edelman king uh, that's been placed by Rome over Jerusalem, but he's not the rightful king. And so when they come and arrive at Jerusalem and say, we want to see he that is king of the Jews, there is deeply seated messianic implications here. Somebody has shared with them of the promise of a coming Messiah, not just a monarchy, but somebody divinely appointed, foretold in the scriptures. And so when you think about this, you know, I saw this and it kind of helped me as I was looking at this. They were unfamiliar with Micah's prophecy about where the, the, the king would be born. So that's why they inquired at Jerusalem. But they, want, they had to have some knowledge of prophetic language or they would not have made that journey just because of the appearance of a star. And they would not have arrived at the city of Jerusalem asking for the king of the Jews if they had not had revelation, an understanding about the messianic expectation. So how could then non-Jewish men, Gentiles, that are hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, divided by a vast desert, know of such a prophecy or many prophecies foretelling the coming of Messiah? And so in order to understand this, we have to, which I won't take you there, but you go back. It began in 586 B.C. in the destruction. It actually began even beyond that or before that. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it, there was a dispersal of Jews all over at that time. 
the Babylonian Empire, later the Persian Empire, and by now the Roman Empire. And as they were dispersed all over the known world at that time, they established synagogues. Then did you know a synagogue in the original language just means assembly? It just means an assembly. And so today we could be Heber Springs' first synagogue. Wouldn't that be different? Shane, we would get you up here with the prayer shawl and the hat, and, and, and then that would validate it just a little bit more. And so, but by establishing that, the intent was very intentional. They didn't want their people dispersed hundreds or even thousands of miles from Jerusalem to forget who they were, to forget the temple, to forget the God of their fathers. And so they were very specific in establishing these synagogues. And in doing so, listen to this, they were fulfilling a prophetic word of Isaiah that said that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were idolaters. Many of them, the, all the known ancient world, were worshipers of some. There were very few atheists. They all worshipped a deity. How I many you know they weren't worshipping the right deity because there's only one God, right? And the Jews taught them while there. And so they established these learning centers. And many times they made full proselyte conversions. People, Gentiles, came and fully converted into Judaism. But there were many more that were not fully converted. But they were called God-fearers. They believed in Yahweh, they, but they didn't go all the way into becoming fully a Jew. So it seems like it, that these men had to have had an acquaintance, or they had been in a synagogue, or they were familiar, or they had, they had studied with someone that exposed them to the knowledge, not only of Yahweh, but the prophecies of the coming of Messiah. So it heightened their expectation. And again, as they're looking into the stars for divine revelation, when they notice the appearance of of a bright star that was not there the night before and had never been seen previously, they knew that something was at work. And I want to get to a scripture here, not right now, but in a moment, because I got to thinking about that. And I said, and God could have chosen anything to direct the Magi to the child. He could have chosen a raven like he did with Elisha he, or Elijah. He could have cho chosen a God, even a Jewish God. He could have had, surely somebody had made the journey from the far east via the international highway to Jerusalem because they were required to go one or excuse me, three times a year. They probably didn't, but they were required to at least attempt it. And so he could have had a fire by night or a cloud by day, but he chose a supernatural constellation that he hid in the night sky to, to, to reveal to this small group of men living a thousand miles away. Why would God do that? That's a great question. We've got to try to, try to answer that somehow today just a little bit. And, and as I begin to think on that, anytime that you write the three-letter word why, sometimes you have to accept something that we don't like to accept, and that's the sovereignty of God. And sometimes there's no good answer for why. Sometimes you have to just to stay back and step back and say, God, it's you. It's your will. You chose I wrote it this way in my notes. I said, God, you can't read this text because without recognizing the sovereignty of God. It's woven tight to this narrative. God chose for his purposes. He chose Magi a thousand miles away. He chose a star that he put in the night sky. He chose a virgin. He chose a carpenter. He chose the time. Galatians said, what time was it? The fullness of time. He also chose the Roman census. He chose the town or the village. He chose the exact location of the birth of the Messiah, to which we'll allude next week. On and on, we simply say God chose. There are times in your life you need to take a step back and embrace the sovereignty of God. It will give you peace at times. To just simply say, God, it's not my will, but it's your will. You're sovereign over this. Let me just be a part of the picture. 
going a little bit farther, I see this. Is I, I just want to give you a few things to note. Just, just to build, how many of you know sometimes you just want to broaden the text and widen the text a little bit? Just to look at it a little bit uh, you know, more, more fully if, if we can. The accepted visit with, the, with King Herod, who is, the, uh, again, the Roman king of Jerusalem, indicates some believe that it is possible that the Magi were of royal descent themselves. We don't know that that's the case, but obviously they didn't arrive by themselves just, uh, and again, I thought Sister Judy did a great job at the uh, Younger Heart the other night explaining to, to, the, to, the, to those that were there with us that it, it doesn't say in the Bible that there were three wise men. We, we simply gained that number because there were three gifts. We don't know whether there were two wise men, seems there be a plurality, or whether there were six. We don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's very possible that they were of a divine descent uh, or, or because, uh, not a divine descent, excuse me, but of a kingly descent because they were given access to King Herod. Any visitor couldn't just show up in Jerusalem, knock on the door and say, I want to talk to the king. But they were uh, given access, so that kind of shows that they at least had something there. And, and some believe that in this context here that the child, when they actually do lay, hands or lay eyes on the child, that the child, again, is up to possibly almost two years of age at this particular time. He's, they, the family's long since moved from the stable scene that we're so familiar with in the nativity. The gifts that the Magi bring reveal either two things, either their awareness or their expectation of the child, or perhaps even if it's obscure to them, it's a prophetic revelation that God, once again, in his sovereignty, even though when they chose what gifts they would bring, they chose gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They chose gold, and in doing so, it, rec it recognizes royalty. It, they chose frankincense. Frankincense was burned in the temple at Jerusalem on the golden altar, and so it's associated with divinity. And they chose a spice, a fragrant spice of myrrh. And myrrh was actually used by the Jews in embalming the dead. So it speaks of his humanity. And so I don't know whether they knew all that or not. But those gifts that they came packaged with and they came to the house to present to the young child, they were drawing attention by the, by the eye of the Spirit to that little child's royalty, his divinity, and his humanity. That's for us to note and just put in our spirit. So after inquiring, the text said, after they inquired of Herod uh, for information, the Magi quickly got back on the journey. And the text seems to indicate that, that when they got back on the journey, they began to go south out of Jerusalem. It seems to indicate that the star that, that had got them on the journey months earlier had perhaps become uh, no longer visible. And they had lost their way. That's why they're inquiring at Jerusalem. But when they leave King Herod's palace and leave the city, it seems as if their star reappears. Because notice the way it was written there. It says, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced. Because it was like it was perhaps gone, and then there it is again. They saw the star, and they're rejoicing. And I got to thinking about that for a moment of time. And I just kind of wanted to pause because I said, you know what? That sounds like a lot of folks in our culture today. Because we make association with the star, with Christmas. And when you think about this, that we, they call, many people call Christmas the most wonderful time of the year. And did you know that even heathens and atheists celebrate Christmas? 
And you know, there are a lot of folks that they have, Christmas is a gathering, it's a family event, it's for family to come together, it's, it's, it's uh, parties and celebrations, it's givings and gatherings. They see the star and they rejoice. There are people that see the star and rejoice and they celebrate and they got eggnog and they got bowl game and then they got on Christmas Day, they got NBA basketball and they got all their parties and their gatherings and people, again, all over the known world look for it and they look to it and they see the star, but my question question is, is that if that's all you've seen is the star, you haven't really seen the true intent of God through Christmas. You've got to see more than the star. You've got to see the child. So I love the way it continued there. They saw the child and they rejoiced to see the star. But then it says they went to the house and then when they saw the child, they fell down and worshiped. I don't want to just be somebody that sees the star. I don't want to just see somebody that sees poinsettias or sees Christmas trees or gets on the road and drives in the villages and looks at Christmas lights. No, I want to see he that came out of the heart of God, that God sent into this world as a propitiation for the sins of men, that I could have access to a holy God because I was unworthy, but God shrouded himself in human flesh in, the, in his son in the nativity. That's who I want to see, and I hope that you want to see him as well today. And so I could have preached it this way. The real star of that narrative was not the one in the sky, but the one in the house. He was the day star that is always visible. Theologically, though, in this text, Matthew chapter 2, we've got a notes. Are y'all out there with me today? Y'all still out there? I hadn't even got to the good stuff yet. I'm just building, taking you somewhere. This is my Christmas present to you. Theologically, though, because you're going to remember something today. You're going to catch notice something. You will never read this text again the same way after when I get to the conclusion of this message. But before we do so, i got to draw attention to theolo- theologically for a moment. We're told by theologians about Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, it seems, was intended for a Jewish audience first. It's t- intended for every man everywhere. But to a Jewish audience because Matthew alludes more to biblical prophecy, Jewish scriptures than any other gospel writer. And as a matter of fact, um, he, he actually, in the first two chapters alone, Matthew refers to five messianic prophecies. I'm going to put them on the screen just real quickly. Chapter 1, verse 22, he said there was a virgin with child. Isaiah had prophesied this. In chapter 2, verse number 6, he clearly says, that, there was, that the babe would be born in Bethlehem. This was the revelation given to them, the Magi, when they had gone to Jerusalem and inquired at Herod's household. Herod obviously concurred to the scribes and the Pharisees who would have reported back to him that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. For the prophet Micah had prophesied this. And Matthew is giving credit to this. In chapter 2, verse 15, later beyond the text that we read, it says that out of Egypt I have called my son. Once again, the prophet Hosea is who had given that prophecy. And then, again, in, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, is the infamous text where Rachel, after the destruction of the children in Bethlehem, following the exodus of Mary and Joseph with their young child, we know that Herod sent his henchmen who killed every male child two years of age and younger. And the Bible says that had been foreseen prophetically hundreds of years earlier by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And he wrote those words. He said, Rachel, weeping for her children, and would not be comforted. And the last one, chapter 2, verse number 23, Matthew accredits to the prophets. He said that when they settled after
after being in Egypt for a period of time, the mother and the father and the young child, that they ended up not settling at Bethlehem. He would not be called a Bethlehemite. He would be called a Nazarene because it had been spoken of by the prophets that he would be born in Nazareth. And so as I was reading this and I was pondering it, something, and this is where the illumination, this is where the light of God began to quicken in my heart. A closer examination of the context of the stories reveals that there is a sixth prophecy a sixth prophecy that is actually revealed in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. But oddly enough, Matthew does not give credit or does not reference it. It's, and, I, and I pondered this, and I wondered why. Why would Matthew, who is so intentional in drawing attention to the fact that all these things are being fulfilled because it was, full, it was spoken of by the prophet, by the prophet, has one of the most most prolific prophecies related to the coming of Messiah, and he chooses to omit it. And in doing so, and it, it, I began, I don't know if I'm right in this, so this is kind of pastoral speculation. I have to believe that it is, it is because it was this prophecy that we're going to get to in a few moments here was not uttered by one of the holy men of old that Matthew holds high esteem. Let me give you a, well, let me see if I can explain this to you. Did you know the preachers of old, the, the apostles, they held the prophets of old in high esteem? And I'm going to try to help you to understand this if I can in our language. Many of us, when we look back and we read about the, the founding fathers of America, even though we may disagree with some of the things that they did, oftentimes we look back at their writings and we hold uh, you know, great respect for those men, for what they did, their sacrifices that they made to give us independence and to give us a nation, don't we? Many of us do that. Well, that's the way that the writers of Scripture, when they alluded to Micah or Hosea or Isaiah, here's what the Apostle Peter said about those men. He said, holy men of old spake, spake as they were empowered by the Holy Ghost. That's, and so that's how they viewed them. But the man that uttered a prophecy that Matthew chose to avoid is referenced three times in the New Testament by Matthew's contemporaries. His contemporaries are, once again, Peter, Jude, and John. And all three times, those contemporary writers, those apostles, if you will, those apostles actually write negatively, negative connotation. Here's what they actually say about the, the Gentile who spoke prophetically and that is being revealed in the text of Matthew chapter number 2. They actually said this. They, they spoke about them being a destructive uh, doctrine. They spoke about him being iniquity, the iniquity of that prophet, or the error of that prophet. And you so I know already I'm building up in your mind, and you'll say, well, Pastor, who was the prophet that was noted in Scripture? And, and the reason why he's spoken ne negatively of is because later, after he utters a prophecy, it seems is that he helped Israel to stumble. He, he sold himself out to a Moabite king, and he led uh, Israel into apostasy. But before he did so, God, the Simon, you know God is sovereign. God can choose whoever he wants to choose. And he chose a Gentile prophet by the name of Balaam, the son of Baor, to give us a prophecy of messianic expectation that perhaps influenced the Magi on their journey. And that's where I want to close with today. I want to tell you a little bit about the prophetic utterance of Balaam. Are y'all out there today? Man, this is going to get good in this house today. I know what's in store in my heart here today. I want to tell you about it as this unfolds. So let me take you back in biblical history for a moment. Can I do that? Well, I got two amens out of that, so... 
I'm going to go off of those two amens. The rest of you didn't give me that, but I hope that you believed it in your heart. So I want to take you back in time for a moment to the time in the children of Israel, what's known as the, 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 the wandering, the time of the wilderness wandering. How many of you remember the narrative when Israel was not allowed because of unbelief, they were not allowed to go into the promised land during the tenure of Moses' leadership as well as the people that had come out of Egypt because of their unbelief. They stumbled when they sent forth the spies. I believe it's in the book of Numbers. They had sent forth their spy, the spies to spy out the land, and the spies came back with 10 of them. 10 of the 12 came back with a negative report. Two came with a positive report. But the negative report overwhelmed the positive report, and the whole nation stumbled in unbelief. How many of you are aware of that? And as a result, they were not allowed, and so they were going to wander in the wilderness. What means by wandering in the wilderness, if we were to put, if we can, we might even catch part of this if you go back to that picture on the screen for just a moment of time there, uh, if we're able to, to do that by, on the, the Fertile Crescent, even though that's not real. You can see Israel down here all the way down Jerusalem. So Israel would have been coming up from the southeast through Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, and coming in there in that south of the Dead Sea there to the right. And the lower, what's called the southeast, would be the land of Moab. And as they are making their journey through the land of Moab, the Moabite king Balak, Moabite king Balak begins to be frustrated by the movements of the people because they've not, they're, they're, they're just simply, and they're, they're growing larger. You can go ahead and hide that again. And so as they do, Balak is concerned and he's like, you know what? If, if we don't do something about this people, they're going to eat up the whole land. They're going to take the whole land. Remember, they're wandering. They can't cross the, the, the Jordan River. They can't go into the promised land. God has forbidden them. So as they're wandering and they're migrating, again, Balak is frustrated. So what Balak does, Balak knows about a prophet. But he's not, just, he's not a prophet of Yahweh. He's a diviner. He's an astrologer. If you will, he's a magi. He's a magician. He, he, has, he has divination. He uses occultic arts to speak to deities and relate messages to people. And in doing so, it is the belief of many that not only can Balak, or Balak if I get it right, Balak, I think it is, uh, he, or excuse me, Balaam, not only can Balaam, uh, can, not only can Balaam, this is a tough one. I got Balak and Balaam up here all, all at one time. So Balaam, let me get, get it right. But Balaam, it seems has an ability that very few people have in the ancient world. He has the ability to curse and bless. And whoever he curses is going to be cursed by whatever deity in the name of the deity that he curses, or that person is going to be blessed by the deity in the name of the deity in which he blesses the individual. And Balak believes that Balaam has the ability to not only curse an individual, but he can curse an entire nation. And so he sends... King James English, an ambassage, a group of princes 400 miles from Moab all the way north of Israel along the Euphrates River, very close, very possibly to the journey the Magi would have made where he's heard about Balaam. And he, sings, and he says, I want you to come because I want to hire. Matter of fact, he sends money. The Bible says the price of divination or the reward of divination when ba Balaam first gets the request from Balak, he refuses. And then this is an interesting account. It's recorded in Numbers 22 through 24. And I can't, I'm going to mostly paraphrase all of this for you today because for the sake of time. But I want to encourage you to go back and read it on your own. So let me tell you what happens. It's kind of unique. 
So when the, when the Amasaj arrives at, at his home there, or where, where they determined to meet there along the Euphrates River, at first he says, I'm not going to go. He rejects the offer. But then in chapter 22, verse 9, it says that God comes to Balaam. And God comes to him, and he says, he tells him, he says that, he said, don't go with them. He said, don't go with them. He said, because he said, you, you can't curse the people of God for they're blessed. That's what God tells him. So God, God specifically comes to him. I don't know how he came to him by an angel. I don't know if it was in the water. I don't know if it was in the stars. I don't know if it was in juju beads. I don't know what it was. But somehow or another, God sent an angel, spoke to Balaam, and said, don't go with them. And then after another ambassador sent to him, again he refuses. And this time, though, when he refuses the second time, then the Scripture says, but God comes to Balaam again, and, ba- and he tells Balaam, he said, I want you to go. He said, I want you to go, but when you go, all you can speak is what I tell you to speak. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Because Balaam determines to go. He gets on his, on his donkey. I'll say that now. I may say something else in a moment. And he starts the journey. Here's where it says, but then God is angry with him for going. And I, I scratched my head on that one as I was reading it. And I said, wait a minute, God. You said go, but then when he went, you were angry with him for going. But then I remembered, God knows the heart and the mind of every individual. And what we know is that God looked into Balaam's heart. And Balaam might have been saying, I'm not going to uh, curse Israel. But he was going to curse Israel. He would have succumbed to the payment that Balak had for him. And he was going to curse the people of God. So God sent an angel. And so the, as, they're, as, as they're making the journey, he's got two men with him. And he's headed down to, the, to meet the, the, the people that Balak has sent to him. And he's on this donkey. Donkey's language that you and I would use. The King James uses the word ass. He's riding on the ass. And the Bible says plainly, that, that there begins to be a narrow place and the Lord sends an angel. Y'all know this story. I, may, I think some of you do. And, and so the angel uh, turns the donkey out of the way. And then ba- ba- Balaam is pulling back and pulling back and he's frustrated. And finally it goes into a real narrow place where there's a wall on one side and a wall on the other side. And the, and the donkey crushes the foot of Balaam against the wall and then he gets mad and he starts hitting the donkey and hitting it over the head. And many of you that ever had animals, you've been frustrated too. And he's frustrated. If he could, he would kill that donkey. And, and all of a sudden, the scripture says God gave a miracle. And I love the way the King James English writes it. I, that's why I love the authorized version of the Bible. It says the dumbass spoke. And I'm not talking about the prophet. Those of you that don't know me well, about four years ago, I preached a message from this pulpit called The Dumbass Spoke. And so in that moment, the donkey is conversing with the prophet, and he's saying, why are you hitting me? Haven't I always done what you wanted me to do? And at that moment of time, number one, that donkey would have been a lot more valuable to me the moment that he said the first thing. I might have said, come on, we're going on the road. Balaam and his donkey. <laughs> and so, but when he did, the Bible plainly says, listen to this, God opened his eyes. And at that moment, he sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn in his hand. And he knows that God has arrested him in the way. And the angel of the Lord says, go with them, go all the way down. He said, but you better do exactly what I'm telling you. When you speak, you better speak what I tell you to speak. 
And so he arrives a 400-mile journey back to the land of Moab, and he meets Balak the king. Remember, we're putting this together quickly because i got to finish this, but I've got to show you what the Lord put on my heart to show you, and it's this. So after sacrifice, Balak takes Balaam up to the top of a mountain, and it's here that he's expecting the prophet, the magi, the astrologer, the one who can curse and their curse and the one who can bless and be blessed. He's expecting that the price of divination will result in Balaam cursing the people of Israel. But how many of you know, again, the sovereignty of God, when he got on the high place and looked in the valley floor at the people of Israel at their encampment, did you know that the encampment was always camped out like a, like a cross? So from up above, he would have looked at the people of God. And so Balaam goes, and he gets alone. He does his divination. He comes back, and Balak is, re- Balak is ready. He can't wait. Curse these people. Get them out of here. Let them die the death. And when he opens his mouth, he speaks prophetic blessing upon the people of God. And Balak is like, what? Shut up. Shut up. What are you doing? You're blessing who I'm paying you or want to pay you to curse. And remember what Balaam said? Balaam said, Balaam said I got to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth. But Balak, Balak excuse me, is not deterred. So again, probably a few days later, they go up to another high place. And this is where we're going to pick up the narrative a little bit. This is the second narrative. And once again, before he opens his mouth, Balaam goes and he gets alone. He does his divination. And in his divination, he comes back. Balak and all of his leaders are around, and they're ready for their enemy, the enemy of Moab, the Israelites, to be cursed by the prophet that they've sent from afar to curse the people of God. Let's read this. It's in Numbers chapter number 23, verses 18 through 24. We'll put it on the screen so you can follow this. And then there's only one more text, and we'll close. And he took up this parable. So again, everybody's gathered. He's failed them the one time, but surely he won't fail them the second time, and he's getting ready. Balak is expecting the cursing of the people. They're going to die. They're going to not only wander, but we'll take their livelihood. We'll take their, their, all their livestock. We'll take their gold and silver. But Balaam opens his mouth, and here's what he says. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. Verse number 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make good? And so when God gets ready, look on down. Let's read it on further. Verse number 20. Behold, I have received commandment to bless. And he hath blessed. And Balaam, in the presence of Balak and all of his, of, of, of his leaders, said, and I cannot reverse it. Let's go farther with this. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord is God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Now, they had no king. There was no king in Israel, but prophetically, he's already beginning to see that there is a king that's going to come forth among them, that, his, that this king is going to be different from all other kings. There's a shout of a king of among him. Verse 22 to 24, let's read it. God brought, brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Verses 23 and 24, surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? And, God, and the people of Israel would be victorious against the enemy. And so can you imagine Balak again hearing this and being beside himself that the man that he has brought down from the land of his fathers 400 miles away refuses to curse the people of Israel. But Balak is undeterred. And so Balak, one more time, Balak says, listen, 
I brought you down here to curse, and I'm going to trust that you're going to curse. And so he brings him one more time up into an exceeding high mountain. And here, once again, Balaam is expected to go be alone, do his divination, talk to his deities, gain his empowerment to curse the people of Israel. And when I saw this, something in my heart began to awaken because I believe Matthew knew about it, but for whatever reason, Matthew chose not to share it with you, but I want to share it with you in closing this message today because there is something I want you to know today. I want you to hear this today. you got to hear this. What God has blessed is going to be blessed. And if God's cursed it, it's cursed. And if God's blessed it, can't no man curse it. And so in this text, let's read it down. We're going to read. You, you read it on the screen or in your Bible. And let's just let the text speak to us today. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Chapter 24, verse number 1. He, said to bless, he went not at other times to seek for enchantments like he did. For he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Jace, there it is. What's what we're looking for? A prophetic word. So here we have a Gentile prophet, astrologer, magi, magician, soothsayer, sorcerer, who worships one deity one day and another deity the next day. But on this moment, the sovereignty of God said, if I can speak through a donkey, I can speak through Balaam. And he begins to speak through Balaam, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. But what does he have to say? What does it bear? Why is the preacher on the week before Christmas 2021 preaching about a prophet named Balaam? It's because of what he said. He took up this parable, and he said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, as the valleys are spread forth as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of lime aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his bucket, and his seed shall be in many waters. And his king will, there's that king again, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and break their bones, and pierce them with many arrows. He couches as a lion, as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesses thee, and curses is he that curseth thee. What a powerful prophetic word. Balaam speaks it, and Balak hears it one more time. Verses 10 through 14, we're not going to read, but that's Balaam's, Balak's rebuttal. Why? Why have you done this? Balaam defends himself. said, if you gave me all the gold and all the money, he said, I can't do but what God's put in my heart and my mouth to do. And here's what caught my attention, though. And here's where I'm going to tie this message together. And I hope that it's not boring to you. But I'll tell you what, when there's nothing boring about revelation. I want my eyes to be open like Balaam's were in that moment of time. I want my eyes to be, because I want to see the child that was in the manger that day. And I want to be one willing to fall down and worship him. 
And so in this context, let's see this. Let's go back to Matthew 2 in our minds for a moment. God chose Magi from hundreds of miles away to travel along the international highway, along the Tigris-Euphrates River, then go south all the way down to Jerusalem. From there, that they would follow a star from, once again, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, where there over the house where the young mother was with her child, they entered in with gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they dropped down on their knees, and when they saw the child, and there they worshipped him. They were moved by something. They were moved by a prophetic word. They knew that it was a king, but it wasn't just a royal king. It wasn't just the king of the lineage of David, but it was a king that they knew was of a messianic expectation that this was a king that had been divinely prophesied of hundreds, hundreds of years earlier, even by one of their own brothers, a magi, an astrologer, somebody who wasn't of, of, of Judaism, but God chose him anyhow to declare the coming king. I want you to read this with me and see if this bears witness in your spirit to see if this is what moved the Magi to leave the land of the east to journey towards Jerusalem. And we're going to close this message. We pick it up at verse number 15. And he took up his parable. And here's what he said one more time. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open said, He hath said, listen, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. He said, I fell into a trance, but my eyes were wide open. And I love this. Read 17 and read it closely. He said, I shall see him, but not now. He said, I can't see him right now. I can't see him. I shall behold him, but not near. He said, but there will come a day when a star is going to come out of Jacob. And there's going to come a day when there's going to come a scepter out of Israel. And he's going to smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And so what that was was a prophetic messianic prophecy that Balaam, given revelation into the divine will of God, saw, and he said, I can see it, but I'm not near it. I said, I won't get the opportunity to bow before him, but I recognize him that he's not just any other king, but this is going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords and one of his fellow brothers, a magi, hundreds of years earlier, very most likely, read or was made aware of that prophecy and said, brothers, we got to go. And we've got to see this child, and we've got to see the one that the stars celebrate and that has a scepter in his hand, and one day he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Glory to God. So on the week before Christmas, I came down to this place to tell you something, that there's still a star and there's still a scepter, and it's Jesus who is the Messiah. And that child that they worship that day, he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He's the root and the offspring of David. And yes, Balaam will worship him. And guess what? There's going to come a day when Balak is going to bow his knee before the King of kings. And Herod Herod found out that you can't curse what God's already blessed. And you and I today, we are in this house because there's something in our hearts that we want to celebrate the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A star and a scepter. A prophetic word spoken by a Gentile prophet. Now here's where, as I invite Daryl on the platform to close with me today. I don't know how long I've preached. But it's been good to be in the Lord's house, at least on my end. Because I guarantee you, right or wrong, you'll never read Matthew 2 again the same. Because you'll know the journey of those magi was most likely inspired 
by another ancient astrologer who had been given access to divine revelation that there was one coming. That that babe that Mary held in her arms that day, that those men with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, after almost four-month journey, they were not disappointed. And when you see him, you won't be disappointed either. If you just have divine revelation, Balaam said, I was in a trance, but my eyes were wide open. And I saw him. He wasn't near. I couldn't touch him. But somebody's going to. Out of Jacob, it's going to come a star. And out of Israel, it's going to come a scepter. How many know God fulfills his word? Why is that written? Why is... Church family, this is where I arrived at a point of conclusion. I said, I can't escape the sovereignty of God. I can't escape the sovereignty of God. God chose Magi in the east, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, to make a journey following an unusual star in the sky, in the night sky, until God chose to obscure it. And then they didn't know where to go, so they go to Jerusalem then they obtain direction, and when they go back outside, God opens the night sky again, and the star appears, and then they make their way to the house where the young child. Why would God do God does that because not a single word of his will not be unfulfilled. If God said it, he will put a star here if he needs to. He'll bring heathens from way over here. He'll move this person here. He'll have a king uh, uh, Caesar Augustus give a census that will move, are y'all out there today, that will cause Joseph and Mary to leave Nazareth and sojourn to Bethlehem. God will do whatever he has to do so that the writers can say, and this happened, that it might be fulfilled as was spoken by the prophetic word of God. And that's why, church family, I came to this house today to celebrate him. I came to celebrate he who was in the house and the arms of his mother. And when the three or the four or the five magi, whatever the number is, when they saw him, I found, I found a, a, a word of, ex, of, of inspiration in this, and I'm going to close on this here today. They saw the star and they rejoiced, as I noted previously. But when they saw the child, something broke inside them. See, the... Their forefather, astrologer, Balaam said, I shall see him, but not now. But they saw him. And when they saw him, let me tell you, something awakened on the inside of them like they had never known before. They knew of other gods. They knew about the gods of the, Ara the, the Arabic gods. They knew about all the gods that were along the Ferdinand Crestle, that every little village had their own deity so many times in that old culture. But in that moment of time, they knew that, that was the God of gods right there, shrouded in that child. A scepter and a star had revealed the son of the living God, the king of the Jews. How do we know he's not just the king of the Jews? He's our king as well. Isn't that right today? They rejoiced when they saw the star, but they worshiped. They worshiped when they saw the child. That's where I'm going to close this message off today. I'm going to close it off by giving you an opportunity today. I honestly believe that whenever you sit down, when you're 
getting near Christmas year after year, and you're reading Luke 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, when you read Matthew chapter 2 again, you're going to read it a little bit differently. But Matthew, for whatever reason, you know what? When I stand before God one day, Matthew may come out of the corner and say, Preacher, I want to talk to you. Because that ain't right. I didn't put that in there. <laughs> but it just seems to me that he just couldn't give credit to the Gentile astrologer that God chose to prophesy a star and a scepter who would find its revelation in Matthew chapter number 2. But you're going to read it, and every time you read it, you'll remember the message that the preacher preached to you today. And you're going to be reminded that that was no ordinary king. That was a messianic, redemptive king, the son of David, but who is now the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He holds and controls the stars and I tell you what, church family, our response to him must be to worship him. We worship him. So I want to ask you as your heads are bowed and eyes closed, I told our guys today, our pastors, and I said, you know, today is all as I close this message is about an invitation. It's about an invitation. That's all I want to do is just to give you an invitation. I hope that, I hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard today. If you like to learn, then you probably did. If you don't, maybe you didn't. Maybe I wasn't dramatic enough maybe I wasn't funny enough uh, maybe I wasn't articulate enough for you but if you like to learn I've got a feeling you you appreciated what I shared here today because it makes the story a little bit broader a little deeper maybe have a little bit different you know maybe connotation to it and you appreciate that but I've said all that to bring you to a place that there could be somebody among us today that you're like the magi you're it's the, it's the, what is today, the 19th of December? You've, you've come to this house because somebody invited you, or it's Christmas time, you're getting ready for celebrations, you've seen the star and you rejoice. You've seen Christmas, you see, you know it, you've been through it year after year, it's, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year to you, you appreciate it, you celebrate it, it's fun, it's fellowship, it's friendship, it's family. All the things associated with it. You rejoice in it. But that's not what we're looking for today. But do you worship him? That's the question. That's the question that must be settled as a result of this text today. As a result of the movement of the wise men, the magi from the east. We don't just celebrate that they saw the star but we recognize and we celebrate that they worshiped when they saw the child. Do you worship when you see the child? I do. I do. And I want to give you an opportunity today. Say, Pastor, I've never made Jesus who is the Christ, the name that we sang about earlier. I've never made Jesus the Lord of my life. And I've been invited to this house by a family member or friend. And today, Pastor, as you have preached, something strange has happened. Something odd is stirring in my heart. And I want to be like the Magi. I want to worship him. I want to submit myself to him. I want to honor and reverence him and commit all that I am to him. If that's you, I don't know. There might be one, might be more among us here today that says, Pastor, I'd like for you to pray with me. I'll pray with you right where you're at, right where you're at. If you'll just have the courage to raise your hand and look towards me, if that's you, then I'll pray with you. Is there anybody? I'm just waiting. I'll wait for just a moment. 
Now look across this congregation. There could be one. There might. I'm just waiting. It's between you and the individual. Is there anyone? Christians, are you praying for just a moment? Would you take a moment, would you pray that maybe the Lord would open the eyes of somebody, maybe like Balaam who had his eyes open, maybe somebody here today says, I want to see the child. I don't want to just see the star. I don't want to just see the splendor of Christmas. I don't want to just see the lights, the poinsettia, the eggnog, the mistletoe. I don't want to just see all that, the gifts and the celebration. I want to see the child. I want to see the Christ child, the one that God sent. That's who I need to see today. Is there anyone? I'm waiting on you today. Is there anyone? I'll, I'll ask everybody to stand up with me today. And we're going to close in prayer. And I'm so appreciative of you giving me this time. Are you out there today? Isn't God good? Doesn't God love you so very much? Aren't you thankful for his word today? Aren't you thankful for the word of God? That you can think and meditate and ponder upon this word Aren't you grateful that when the enemy tries to curse the plans of God, he can't curse what God's blessed? Just can't do it. He tries. It doesn't matter how much resources there are. He can't stop what God puts in motion. He can't. I'm so grateful for God's grace and God's power. I'm grateful that the text still speaks. I'm grateful in my heart that a familiar text, Matthew chapter 2, still speaks to us today. And I can, I can picture him in the arms of his mother and worship him like I was one of the magi. But I can also go back hundreds of years earlier when Balaam wants to curse, but God's spirit comes on him and he blesses rather than curses and he prophesies. Listen, I'm not going to let you go until you remember this. A star and a scepter. A star and a scepter. Let's close. Father, I love you. Thank you for my church family today. Thank you that they sat so willingly to hear me preach. They honored the word of God by letting me both read it and speak it into their spirits, their souls. Father, they were respectful and they responded in their heart and their mind. And my prayer is that, Father, that, that we all continue to see and to worship the child. The Christ child. The one that God sent out of his own heart, his own bosom. His son, the son of the living God born of the virgin, destined to die. A star and a scepter, a king, king of the Jews, my king, our king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. The stars declare his glory, and the scepter's in his hand. One day, Lord, we know he's going to return and he's going to rule the nations with that scepter in his hand. And we're going to worship him until that time comes. So bless the people as they leave this house today. In their hearts, while they're driving back to their houses or to the places that they're going to eat today, let them, let them be reminded of a star and a scepter, how that God used a Gentile astrologer to prophesy the coming of his son so that when I got to this house today, I would have a message or a word for this people to remind them of his lordship. I'm so grateful to have this privileged opportunity. Lord, bless the people. It's in Jesus' name. And all of God's children said, amen and amen. Listen, love somebody, hug somebody. If you see somebody you do not know, you are obligated by pastoral edict.
to introduce yourself and to say thank you for coming out and being in worship service with us today. We so appreciate you being here.